chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and then later we'll look at the rest of the chapter. So hear God's word from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, "'Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain.'" And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray, and I'm going to use the words of the song we sang just a moment ago. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It is a pleasure to be back here again after the first of the year, although I must say I thought I was coming south where there'd be warmer weather. (laughs) It's not very much warmer here than it is in Orlando, but much warmer than in the north, right? For which we can be thankful. But it is good to be back and to look into God's Word with you in a chapter that is so big, so full, I hope and pray that God will help us just scratch the surface of it a little bit and leave with us a a huge picture of the glory of Jesus Christ today. Uh, You know, sometimes kids don't understand what words mean. My grandson, we have several grandchildren, and one of them is named Lincoln. Lincoln is four years old, and he loves the movie Rocky. Many of you have seen Rocky, some of those Rocky movies, I'm sure you've seen those. He loves Rocky. Talks about him all the time. Any chance he can get, Lincoln watches this movie, Rocky. Well, my wife and I were visiting my son and his 
wife not long ago, so we were sitting on the sofa with Lincoln watching the movie Rocky, and there's that part of the movie where he goes into training for the big fight against Apollo Creed. And so he's training, you know, lifting weights, running, running up steps, running on the beach, uh, doing push-ups, doing pull-ups, all of that training. And so, wow, we said, wow, Lincoln, wow, he's really working hard, isn't he? He's going into training. And um, Lincoln, with perfect seriousness, said, I've never done that kind of training. I've only done potty training. (laughs) He was so pleased with himself. Potty training. And, uh, you know, when it comes to... (laughs) <laughs> when it comes to theology, kids really get things mixed up sometimes. Um, you might have heard about the child who said that if the people of Israel are Israelites and the people of Canaan are Canaanites, are the people of Paris called parasites? <laughs> and another kid uh, said one time that Solomon had 300 wives and 700 porcupines. <laughs> so... You know, biblical words, biblical ideas are hard, you know, for children to grasp. But they're hard for adults to grasp, too. Sometimes we adults get things mixed up. Things in the Bible, things in theology. And one of the things that is hard for many adults to grasp is the the doctrine of the deity of Christ. Do you know what I mean when I use that word, deity? It means divinity. It means that Jesus Christ is God, the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus has a divine nature. So today I want to talk with you about that, the deity of Christ from Revelation chapter 5. And we'll look at a few other passages too. But basically, here's what I'd like to do with us this morning. Two things, just two things. Number one, answer the question, what does the Bible say about the deity of Christ? What does it teach? Is he really God? And the second thing let's do is to apply that truth to our lives. That is, how should knowing that Jesus is God impact our lives today? So, with that plan in mind, let's dive into the first point. What does the Bible teach? Is Jesus, in fact, really God? Well, the Bible teaches that As you know, Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. That he was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea. That as a baby or toddler, he moved to Nazareth with his mother and father. That he grew up through boyhood and into adolescence and then into adulthood. And that at the age of roughly 33... Jesus Christ died on the cross and three days after that rose from the dead and 40 days after that ascended into heaven. Those are the facts about the earthly life of Jesus. Facts that most of us know quite well. In fact, from the days we were children, we probably had a Bible story book in our home, maybe by our bed, and mom or dad would read out of that Bible story book about the life of Christ and the many wonderful things, the miracles, the teachings, what he did on the cross and how he rose again. Those facts are known pretty well. What many people don't know is that this Jesus, who was a real baby, a real boy, a real man, 
was and is and always will be God. The Bible teaches that before he became that baby in the manger of Bethlehem, Christ was from all eternity, always had been, and always will be fully God. That Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, that's Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus being co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and with the Spirit. Holy God and sinless man in one person. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, you know, throughout church history, this doctrine has been denied and opposed by all sorts of people. And it's denied today by many people who call themselves believers in God. Groups of people like the Muslims, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know if you've ever had a knock on your door by a couple of guys in white shirts and black ties who introduce themselves as missionaries of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Do not believe the things that I just said, that Jesus is God. That's something that is denied by many groups, including them. But the Bible shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that the deity of Christ is an essential part of the gospel. The gospel that we believe and that we preach. It might be a mysterious doctrine. It, might, it is a hard doctrine for our puny brains to get a hold of. It's, it's high, it's mysterious, it's, it's deep, it's profound, but it's clearly taught in the Bible. John chapter 1 says... Very plainly, in the beginning was the Word, that's just another name for Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 8, 58, Jesus is speaking, and He says to a group of Jews, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That, 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 that phrase, I am, it, it harks back to the name of God, Yahweh, the one who is I am who I am. Jesus is claiming deity there. He says in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. In John chapter 20, after the resurrection, you know the story about uh, doubting Thomas, right? He didn't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead and was alive. And uh, when Jesus finally appears in the room with Thomas, Thomas touches his hand, he sees the wound in his side, and he says, my Lord and my God. Thomas says, Jesus, you are God. Only God could rise from the dead. The Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians says, in him, that's Christ, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He also says in chapter 9 of Romans, Jesus, he says, is God over all. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 says, the Father says about the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Catch that. The Father says to His own Son, your throne, O God. The deity of Christ. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1.1 says, 
that Jesus is our God and Savior. And one more verse in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus is called the true God and eternal life. Now, I could go on and on. I could cite a lot of different Bible verses. But think about this. The very fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin displays His deity. He did not share in the sinful nature that you and I have when we're conceived. The fact that Jesus performed miracles, the fact that He forgave sins, that He rose from the dead, all of those things display His deity, His divinity, Jesus being God. Uh, One of the seminary professors that you might know of up in Orlando, his name is John Frame, written many, many books of theology. He says that the deity of Jesus Christ is found in one way or another on every page of the New Testament. Now, here we read Revelation chapter 5. So let's, uh, let's think about the passage that I read a little bit ago. There in Revelation 5, you're going to see a number of other things that display the deity of Christ. First of all, I want you to notice in Revelation 5 the wisdom and power of Jesus Christ. The wisdom and power of Christ prove that He is God. Now, to understand Revelation 5, I don't know if you've read the book of Revelation lately, It's my favorite book of the Bible. I love the book of Revelation. But to to really understand Revelation 5, you'd really have to go back to Revelation chapter 4. And we're not going to take time to read chapter 4, but let me tell you what's in chapter 4. In Revelation 4, you have a vision that the writer of this book, who is the Apostle John, a vision that he had of God on the throne of heaven, And let me tell you what he sees in this vision, okay? He sees the Lord shining like jewels, encircled by a rainbow, facing a gigantic sea of of glass. And God is surrounded by these 24 elders clothed in white. Also, there are seven blazing lamps around God and four living creatures, bizarre looking creatures, things you can't even really picture in your your mind. But these four living creatures are continually singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as John looks at this mind-boggling vision, He hears loud noises, loud peals of thunder. And he sees blazing flashes of lightning coming out from this throne. So that's the vision that he's seeing in chapter 4. It must have just blown him away. But then we come to chapter 5 that I read. And now he begins to see more details. In verse 1, He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that is God, a scroll. A scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now what is this scroll? Well, there are a lot of theories. But basically this scroll represents the decrees of God about the future. You ever seen a blueprint? 
Some of you, I bet, have been in construction. You've built a house. You've built a business. You've seen buildings going up. You've seen blueprints, right? In a way, you can compare this scroll to a blueprint. A blueprint for things that are yet to happen. Some things soon, some things a little further out, and some things going to happen way out in the distant future. And that's what chapters 6 through 8 are all about. So you can read that on your own sometime. But this scroll is a story of God's plans and purposes for His people. But the main point about this scroll is that it is impossible to open. That would be frustrating, wouldn't it? Suppose you're building a house and you've got a blueprint that's rolled up and somebody says, I'm sorry, you can't open this. It's impossible to open. You would find that very frustrating, I'm sure. It says in verse 2, John says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. So in other words, this scroll is impenetrable. Its contents are a complete mystery. And John says in verse 4 that because this scroll couldn't be seen, couldn't be opened, he began to weep loudly. Verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Now think about this for a moment. You can relate to John Can't you? Haven't there been times in your life when you were going through something hard and you wished that you could have understood why these things happened to you? You wondered, what is God up to? What is His purpose in this suffering? Why can't God tell me what He's doing? Why doesn't it make any sense to me? Haven't you said that to God sometimes? Haven't you thought that in your head? You've said, Lord, why are you allowing this to take place in my life? What is the meaning of this? See, you've wept loudly, I suppose, even if only to yourself, about things that you didn't understand. I have a small group that I meet with every Tuesday night. And last Tuesday night, the youngest member of my small group, she's 30, broke the news that she went to the doctor about some soreness she had inside her throat, only to be told that she has a large tumor growing on her thyroid. And on the other side, a smaller tumor growing on her thyroid. Now this young woman just gave birth to a little baby, her second little child. And now she has to deal with that. And she began to weep. Loudly, And we all did too, because we did not understand why. Why would God choose her? Why would God allow that in her life? Why not my life? I'm in my 60s. Why not someone else that doesn't have just a young baby to care for? She's got to go through surgery. She's got to get a biopsy. She's got to go through all of this stuff. Why, Lord? It's like an impenetrable scroll when things happen that we don't understand. And we want to say, God, let's skip the sad parts and go to the ending. We want our story to say that they all lived happily forever after. We don't like scrolls and plans and blueprints that we don't understand. 
But we'll never understand things like that, will we? Not on this side of death, not in this life. Things happen that we will not understand. You can't open every scroll, no matter how much you would like to. Not even the strongest angel can look into the decrees of God and understand. That's why we weep in this life. That's why we struggle in this life. Just like John in verse 4. But then comes verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He can open the scroll and its seven seals. That's good news. Because this is a picture of Jesus Christ's sovereign rule over all things. Jesus knows why things happen like they do. He knows what is to come. Jesus is in control of the future. His kingdom will prevail. All wrongs will be made right. Your tears will be wiped away. Death and sin and injustice and abuse and hatred will be no more. And all things will be made new. All of that is summed up in this lion of the tribe of Judah. This image of him being a lion, the root of David, comes straight out of the Old Testament. I don't know if you're familiar with a couple of these passages in the Old Testament, but it was predicted in Genesis chapter 49 that a lion-like ruler would emerge from the tribe of Judah to deliver God's people. It was predicted in Isaiah 11 that a root or a a, a shoot would come from the stump of Jesse, who is King David's father, and he would one day emerge as a banner for the Lord's people. So these images of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, are a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And they speak about Jesus. This is Jesus here. He was the one born of Mary and Joseph who were of the tribe of Judah. That's right. He came from the line of David, born in the city of David, namely Bethlehem. Jesus is the one that John sees here in the Lion of Judah. He can open the scroll. Jesus can do what no other man, no other angel in this universe can do. Now look, he may not tell you what's in the scroll. (laughs) You still may have uh, struggle knowing why God does certain things like he does. He may not tell you what's in the scroll. But what Jesus can do is give you the security, the strength, and the faith to persevere through your time of struggle. Why? Because he's God. That's why. Jesus is omnipotent. He can do all things. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is the king of the jungle. He's the lion. He's almighty. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. Can you imagine an animal better suited to symbolize the deity of Christ than a lion? Lions, I, I did a little research on lions. Lions are predatory carnivores. They are among the animal kingdom's most brutal and efficient predators, it says in the encyclopedia. 
Lions mainly eat large animals like zebras and wildebeests that weigh from 100 to 1,000 pounds. Can you believe that? They're fast too. They can run up to 60 miles per hour. A male lion's roar can be heard up to five miles away. Wow. Jesus is strong and powerful. He is the Lion of Judah. So not only do you see His power and wisdom in this chapter, which point us to the deity of Christ, but also you see His love and grace. The love and grace of Jesus Christ are in this chapter, and they also show us His deity. Here's how I see the rest of this chapter playing out, and I think this is so beautiful. You remember John was weeping loudly because he was so so struggling over the fact that he couldn't understand what's inside this scroll. And so I'm, I'm thinking that John's tears are sort of clouding his eyes, and so he grabs a Kleenex and begins to get the tears out of his eyes because he's fully believing that he's going to open his eyes and see this lion standing there. But instead of a lion, he opens his eyes and sees a lamb. Look at verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, isn't that something? Instead of a lion, a lamb. I mean, what a different kind of animal is that that John sees? Now, I want you to see four four things about this lamb that John tells us about in verse 6. Four things. Number one... John uses a special Greek word for this lamb. It's the Greek word arneon. Now that's a different word from other words that could have been chosen for the lamb. The word arneon means little lamb or delicate lamb. John wants to make sure that we get the picture of Christ as a person of humility and meekness and gentleness. That's number one. Secondly, this lamb looks as though it had been slain. Now ponder that for a moment. In other words, this lamb bears the mark of a fatal wound. This lamb had been slaughtered. The Greek phrase there literally means with its throat cut. Okay? Thirdly, but even though it had been slaughtered, even though it had this mark of a throat being cut, John says this lamb is not lying down. It is not slumped down in defeat. It's not limping along like something that had been wounded. But instead, this lamb is standing. Standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. In short, this lamb is not dead but alive, fully alive. This lamb has conquered death. And fourth and finally, this lamb in verse 6 is pictured as having seven horns and seven eyes. Now look, we are looking at vision here. You know, our, our, this is, a, this is a, uh, a proof 
that our finite minds can't comprehend the infinite, right? And this is symbolic, figurative language. But they mean something. The horns represent strength and power. The eyes represent wisdom and knowledge. And the number seven, you might know, is the number of perfection or completeness. It represents that the debt has been fully paid. The debt has been fully paid. The, The sin problem has been completely solved. That's what you see in that number seven. And so all of these are symbols. The eyes, the horns, the seven things... Symbols of omnipotence and omniscience, love and grace. These are things that only God can do. These are things that only God can be. But think about this now. Lion and lamb. Jesus is both lion and lamb. That makes Him absolutely unique. Nowhere else will you find such completely different character traits combined perfectly in one person. Jesus brings the hardness and power of a lion together with the softness, gentleness, and submissiveness of a little lamb. Jonathan Edwards was a famous preacher back in the colonial era of America in the early 1700s. He preached a sermon on Revelation 5. I would have loved to have heard that sermon and been in that congregation that day. He called his sermon, The Excellency of Christ. And let me read you just a couple of sentences from his sermon. He says, There do meet in Jesus Christ infinite highness and infinite condescension, infinite justice and infinite grace, Infinite glory and lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness, absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. Lion and lamb. See, only Jesus who is a lamb-like lion and a lion-like lamb perfectly powerful and perfectly gracious, can accomplish your salvation. Only someone who is himself God can endure the wrath of God on the cross. Only someone who is God can rise again from the dead and live and conquer death after receiving a fatal wound. Only someone who lived a perfect life, a sinless life, a holy life, can give you His righteousness and satisfy the demands of God for uh, justice. Now do you see why the deity of Christ is an essential part of the gospel? If Jesus is not God, folks, look, if Jesus is not God, you know what? He's nothing more than a good example. And nobody can live up to that. If Jesus is not God, He is no Savior. And you and I are all lost and without hope. But He is God. The gospel is true. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself and not counting their trespasses against them. Back in December, you know the awful tragedy that happened in San Bernardino, California. You might have read about a man named Shannon Johnson. 
Shannon Johnson was one of the 14 people who died that day at the hands of two terrorists. Shannon was age 45, and he was an environmental specialist working for the San Bernardino County Health Department. And on that fateful day, he was sitting next to a woman, one of his co-workers named Denise Peraza, when those two people burst into the room and started shooting. Shannon instinctively grabbed Denise and you know, brought her down to the floor and huddled with her under a table using a chair, putting a chair up as a shield from the hail of bullets. Denise got hit. She got shot in the lower back, but she survived and she's okay today. But Shannon Johnson did not make it. He was shielding Denise from the shooters and in the act of saving her, was fatally wounded. Later on, they had a memorial service for Shannon, and Denise made a statement, and in that statement she said this, and I quote, I will always remember his left arm wrapped around me, holding me as close as possible next to him behind that chair. And amidst all the chaos, I'll always remember him saying three words, I got you. I got you. Denise says, I am still here today because of this amazing man. Shannon Johnson, you see, was like a lion and a lamb. He was strong and brave enough to stand up to the enemy and loving enough to die for his friends. Jesus is the lion and lamb. On the cross... He shielded His people from the wrath of God and said to you and to me, I got you. I got you. So what does the deity of Christ mean for us today? This fact of God's omnipotence, Jesus' omnipotence and grace. How should it affect you? How should your life be impacted by this doctrine? Well, I... I guess there are two groups of people that we could ask that question to. And perhaps both groups are represented here today. Group one is non-Christians. And and maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you are here today as a guest of someone. Maybe you're curious about Christianity and you're here or you just love this church, but you're not a, a, a committed Christian. If you're not, I'm going to ask you to let Revelation chapter 5 this doctrine of the deity of Christ, cause you to seriously rethink your life. What have you done with Jesus? (laughs) I mean, could any question be more important than that? What have you done with Jesus? If Jesus Christ is really God in the flesh, means He created you, means He died for you, it means He wants you to live for Him and with Him forever, If Jesus is really God, you can't afford to keep putting Him off. One day it will be too late to think about what you got to do with Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you to go to God, if you're not a Christian, and ask Him to show you Himself. Read the Bible. Keep coming to church, hearing the gospel, hearing the Bible explained and taught. Tell God you're sorry for your sins. Ask Him to forgive you. 
You know, you have a promise, and that is this. In John 6, 37, Jesus said, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if you go to God and you sincerely desire to know Him, He will not turn you away. He will welcome you with open arms. He loves nothing more than doing that. So don't keep putting Jesus off. But if you are a Christian, and I assume most of you are, let the deity of Christ do two things. Let's commit to these two things. Number one, the deity of Christ, let it compel your worship. Let's now read the rest of the chapter. Remember I said I'd stop at verse 10. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, Then I looked, this is still John speaking, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Oh my, this is a glorious scene of heartfelt, humble, joyful worship. When you come into this room on Sunday morning, or when you're at home opening your Bible, having your devotion time, or whatever it is, when you do those things, do you realize that you are in the presence of the Lord of glory, the Lamb of God who was slain, and the Lion of the tribe of Judah? Do you realize in whose presence you are. There's that famous place in the C.S. Lewis book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of you have read that, I'm sure, the Chronicles of Narnia. There's this famous place in there where Peter and Susan and Lucy see Aslan for the first time. Aslan is a lion. He is representative of Christ. And he says, C.S. Lewis writes this, People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think, that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found that they couldn't look at him and they went all trembly. (laughs) You know, I think if we really consider who it is, that we are worshiping, we might just go all trembly. And that wouldn't be such a bad thing to do. Secondly, let the deity of Christ not only compel our worship, but calm our fears. Let it calm your fears. We're living in fragile times, aren't we? Can you believe what is going on in the world today? I'm just, it's astonishing. We're living in very fragile times. We worry about things that we didn't worry about five years ago, 10, 20, certainly 50 years ago. The worries are completely different. But we have a Savior we can trust. We have a Savior who is strong and mighty, who has ascended to heaven and now reigns and rules over all things. 
He is the one whose name is above every name. He is the one who holds the scroll in his hand and says to you, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered the root of David. I've got the whole world in my hands. Let it calm your fears. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. We worship and praise you today that you are, in fact, the Lion of Judah, the the Lamb of God, the one whose blood has washed away our stain. We thank you, Jesus, that you can open the scroll, that you're omnipotent, you're omniscient, that you're also kind and loving, so loving that you came to bear our sins in your own body on the tree. Lord, we pray that this truth would change us right now. And it can because the Holy Spirit says He'll take the Word and let it bear fruit. Lord, we pray for anyone in here who does not yet trust Christ, has not turned from sin and admitted his sins and asked you for forgiveness. If there is someone like that here, Lord, we pray that he or she would go home today and really ponder your truth claims, that you're the God who's created us, that you're the God who is coming back someday, and that you're going to be the judge of all the earth. Lord, let today be the day that person puts his or her trust in you. And for the rest of us, Lord, we pray that this truth would compel us to worship you in spirit and truth, and also that it would calm our fears and cause us to be a confident, calm optimistic people that don't trust in politics or some other human thing, but we trust in you. Lord, we thank you for this truth. Thank you that it's real and practical. And we thank you for your word, for showing us more about Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.